Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. I want you to cast your mind back to October of 2002. Uh, If you don't recall it uh, clearly, it was a time when Uh, Our relationship with our favourite holiday destination, uh, overseas at least, uh, changed forever. Uh, Bomb blasts ripped through the tourist district of Kuta uh, in Bali and took with it 202 lives. 88 of those were Australians. Uh, My next guest was there in the Sari Club uh, at the time when the main blast rang out. Uh, He lost seven of his mates from the Kingsley Football Club and suffered burns to 60% of his body. And after some, uh, some fairly dark chapters in his life, he's managed to uh, turn things around. Uh, he inspires people uh, through his words and his stories and also uh, teaches people all manner of uh, disciplines in martial arts. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Phil Britton. How are you, Phil? Really good, mate. Really good. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. It's been a while. It's uh, almost 18 years yeah. uh, since the Bali bombings. Has that time, as you reflect on it, has it gone quickly, slowly or... It kind has, of as I mean, you expect. It has its moments where it sort of feels like it's um, slowed right down. Yeah. I mean, I like, especially every year around the anniversary time. Mm. It, and we use those moments to connect back to with what happened because it's quite easy as, you know, yeah, 18 years on or whatever to, to compartmentalize what happened in your life. You know, when it happened there and then, you just, it was everything to yep. the people who were directly affected and even the Australians who weren't directly affected. So um, it became... All of my life, and now it's only part of my story, mm. you know. So, yeah, it's really exciting to be able to you know, move forward in my life and sort of see what that moment, that defining moment of my life, what happened to me and my buddies, uh, has, has meant for my life now, yeah. all these years on. Yeah. You were only a young man, 22, 22 yeah. at the time. If it's not too painful to, to reflect on it now, can you, can you tell us what the striking memories are of that night, October 12th? Yeah. 2002 firstly what led you and your mates to be in the Sari club at that horrible moment well I guess you know the lead up being part of the football club you know we had an end of season trip planned and um, you know the 22 of us that went over there uh, were a club within a club and Mm. you know we were going to celebrate whether we won lost or or had a draw that year but you know we had a successful year of footy and that led us to celebrating that that year. And, yep. uh, yeah, all of us went over to Bali. And, you know, look, if anyone's been involved in footy clubs before, you know, rowdy bunch of guys. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I do remember a couple of things clearly. You know, obviously we had a few drinks in the morning to celebrate leaving. And then uh, I do remember clearly the, the, the pilot of the plane taking us to Bali saying, if you guys don't settle down on this plane, we're going to turn this around. And he and was uh, talking to you guys? Yeah, he was talking to our yeah. football club here. Right. And I was... You know, obviously all these, all those moments of hindsight, you know, thinking, well, I wish he did, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so there's 22 of us. We're in Bali. We're celebrating. Um, you know, it's fair to say we're pretty well toasted. You know, we were drunk you know, pretty early on in that day. Mm. And so half of us were sort of split on what we wanted to do that first night. Do we want to celebrate? Do we want to just have an easy night? Um, but we had this pact. It was one in all in. And mm. um, we all said, no, we're all going to go to uh, out for dinner. And then we're going to go to Sari Club, which... At my time, it was the it was the go to place. It was the go to place. I was twenty two. This is the first time I've had an overseas trip without my family. 
you know, this is my sort of big boy trip, you know. And, uh, you know, we, we just we just automatically went to Sari Club. Mm. And I remember it was just, I just I can picture it now, just seeing the smiling faces, the loud music, you know, the humid temperature. And everyone was just there regardless of who you were. I mean, there were AFL teams around, you know, waffle clubs, uh, amateur clubs, female, everyone from all over the world was there. And mm. I just remember clearly like just thinking, you know, everyone was having the time of their life. Yep. And then literally from that moment, from one moment of having the time of the life, yep. it was like a light switch went off. And Eight that, minutes and, past 11 And we were fighting for our lives. Yep. And um, for me personally, it was it was black, it was eerie, it was silent. And then, you know, I think my ears sort of, you know, ringing, like ringing. I couldn't yep. hear anything. And then as the sound's coming back, I'm just hearing screams like, you know, the, the worst murderous movie you've ever seen uh, or heard of, you know, screams. And then you could just hear it all of a sudden, woof, the, fly, the fire just ignites, thatched roofs falling down on fire, alcohol bottles are popping, and just, you know, blood-curdling screams of people dying. Uh, were, were you aware that there were, you know, in that moment, were you aware that there were people who had already perished around you? On I mean, my is, escape. Is it so dark you can't see it what It sort of, you know, it, 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 it became, you know, if we've all sat around a bonfire before, you know, it's pretty bright. And um, mm -hmm. it was that moment, it was dark, eerie, couldn't hear anything and it all just started coming back and you could start seeing figures in the darkness. Um, and, you know, as I was trying to figure out my way of escaping, if there was walls of fire everywhere and I couldn't get out. My initial injuries were... Um, my, my hands went to my face. I realized all my front teeth were blown out and I had blood, you know, dripping out of my face. And I just felt like I'd been punched square in the face by Mike Tyson. It was just so painful. But yet I'm trying to figure out I've got to get out of here otherwise I'm gone. Yeah. So as I'm sort of looking around, walls of fire everywhere, I see one spot, um, this wall off to the left that was free of fire. So as I'm walking through there, I could feel people's arms touching my legs and you could see people on the ground not moving, people moving, people, you know, it was just... Horrific. It was horrific, you know, and, and then I'm met by this wall, you know, this wall which looks almost impossible to get over, but I'm looking behind me and there's fire creeping in. It's like I've got no choice. I try, I've got to try and get over this wall. And, and you've got burns to 60% of your body yeah. at that moment. Were you, were you even, a, I mean, is your body in shock? Are you even aware yeah, of the intense just, pain? You just go in shock and yeah. you don't realise, you don't you don't think about how painful you are. You just know it hurts like hell, you mm. know, and... And I don't, I don't know if I got burnt so much. Uh, probably maybe a little bit on the initial blast, but escaping the fire, the fire over that wall was where I believe most of my burns came from. Mm -hmm. um, because as I said, that wall was so big. You know, I, I found a little retaining wall. I jumped up and I got so high that just my fingertips were on that wall. And as I went to pull myself up, I slipped and oh, I wow. fell into the fire. Oh gosh. And then, so I'm, you know, at that point, didn't really know what was going on. Hence why all my back's burnt. So all my front of my body's fine, but my back is because I fell backwards. Yeah. And then, um, literally peel myself up on the floor, look at the wall. I failed. I look behind the, the fire starting to creep in and lick my back. I jump up on that wall again. I give it another crack and, uh, I'm almost over. And then I feel hands on my shoulders and hands on my hair. I'm being sort of pulled down by all these other people trying to cross over Do me. The same. I'm being used as a ladder, basically yeah. a human ladder. So I'm pulling myself up. I've got the weight of all these people as well. I slip and we all fall down into the fire. Yeah. And it was at that moment where I really felt like giving up. Yeah. I felt like there was no use. I had no energy left. I had nothing. And and it's quite, you know, we've probably heard these, these sayings, cliche sayings before, you know, your life stands still like, you know, the movie flashes before you die. And, and it was, it was really mm. like that. And 
I had that moment of of uh, curling up in this fetal position with all that stuff going on, thinking this is it. And then I sort of think, you know what? If I don't get out of here at the age of this 22, is this is it. And I'll never, I know things are just things that you think you would always expect that get in your life. Like I thought I'll never get married. I'll never have kids. I'll never have the white picket fence, you know, the house, you know, all these things that you just think you're going to get in life. I was like, I'm this life's gone. Mm. And something came over me. I had no idea I had this sort of energy or this determination. I got up, I looked at that wall, I said, I'm getting out now, like in my head. And the funny thing is I don't really even remember how I got over. I just remember being perched on top of that wall. Yep. And as I crawled across the neighboring roof, that's when I felt it for the first time. My back was just burning, burning, burning. Yep. So I ripped my singlet off and I remember half my skin on my back came off oh, with it. Wow. I had no clue, threw it into the fire and then jumped off the neighboring building onto the, into this alleyway and just started running. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, yeah, it's just chaotic. And like you said, you know, you just don't have any concept of pain because the adrenaline's pumping and you're just mm. thinking life or death at this point. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and what about your teammates? Were you able to take stock of no, where yeah. they were and how they were? Well, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately for me, I was in that moment where I was just focused on me. Yeah. I, as far as I was aware, everyone was dead. Yeah. I didn't really acknowledge what was going on or who was around me. I was, everyone was gone and I was running. Mm. Now I was running from the fire. I was running from the danger. I was running from the burning every time. So the, you don't know if there's another the, blast the fur, coming. The further or I ran, anything. the less it burnt. You know what yeah. I mean? So I had no idea. And mm. then I got about 50 meters up the road and some expats who were living in Bali, they were at a shop opening and um, they're, they were at a shop opening. They got hit by a bit of shrapnel mm. and their car was parked on that main road. And all the cars were on fire or exploded except for their car. Their car, they got in their car. They did a U-turn in that one-way street. And as they, their car washed over me, their lights shone on me. And in the grand, grandson's uh, words said, I had sheets of skin 30 centimeters long hanging from my arms. Oh, my God. And I looked like this beast, just yeah. dazed and confused. Yeah. So next thing I know, these, this family, grandparents, this grandson's trying to grab me and put me in their car. They're trying to help me, but I've got no idea. I'm fighting yeah. them. Dazed. They're like, who are you? And they're going, we're saving you. And, and skin's coming off my oh, arms. God. I'm like this wet fish. They bundle me in this car and they just start driving me, eventually calm me down and eventually get me to a uh, little clinic, uh, medical clinic outside of the, in the main area yep. where we woke up the people who were there. So... I was on this journey. I, I didn't get to Sangla Hospital until probably um, uh, mid mid morning, around four in the morning. After that, all ideal. So several just, hours yeah, later. Yeah, several then. hours. I had no medical treatment, no pain relief. Uh, when I walked in Sangla Hospital, I didn't know who was there. I just walked in myself. The doors opened, and mm -hmm. all I see is this. You expect to walk in a hospital and see white walls and order. And, you know, things happening. It was chaotic. There was mm. blood on the floor, blood on the, on the beds. There were people dying. There was just pandemonium. It was just in, incredible. Yeah. Wow. That's a vivid story. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for sharing. And thank we're going to take a break. But Morris. after that, we'll start talking about uh, the days after, the very early chapter of your recovery. This is Inspiring Stories. Our special guest is Bali bombing survivor Phil Britton. We'll be back with more shortly. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything.
Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest in this episode is Bali bombing survivor Phil Britton. Uh, Phil, um, you were part of the Kingsley Football Club, as we've spoken about. It became one of the uh, the real focuses of the the media coverage and, and just the general description of the, the tragedy that unfolded there. I think largely because there were seven yeah. people just from your group of, of 22 mm. uh, that didn't make it. Can you tell us when you were first aware of of what the toll was on your immediate yeah. group of mates there? Well, all I remember is um, being found by one of my teammates um, midday Sunday. So yep. I was missing, presumed dead. My name was on a wall of people who hadn't been found yet. The guys knew uh, or didn't know who was alive or dead. So the point that I got picked up by my, my buddies and, um, and found was one very relieving but because I was still focused on just recovering myself, mm. they, they took me from this little area to the Australian area of the hospital where everyone was getting looked after. Um, I was on the third and last Hercules out of there. And uh, it wasn't until I woke up out of my induced coma, probably about a week later, that I actually realized that any of my friends were, were dead. You yeah. Know? Um, and yeah, just waking up. Just and I didn't even know what had happened. Do you know what I mean? It was just it was I was still trying to figure this all out. Yeah. You know, one minute I'm this young, 22 year old, bronzed, long haired, surfy athlete. Now I'm this broken, zombie beast, crucifix in a hospital bed. Yeah. Um, fighting for my life. Um, and one of the most painfulest things was in the weeks after that was then hearing that this person's remains to be found. And it was just every day or every couple of days they'd found, find something else that led to us knowing that X, Y, or Z was uh, found dead. And then just knowing that I'd never got to say goodbye, you know, yeah. and, and and then having their funerals and me still being stuck in Royal Adelaide Hospital mm-hmm. um, was really tough. So being separated was, was sort of a good thing and a bad thing. Um, in my recovery, being put in Adelaide Royal Adelaide Hospital because Perth was full by the time I got there. But I just remember it just being really painstaking and heartbreaking that that I just couldn't say goodbye. Like my last moment and memory with my mates was was there, you know, and yeah. they, they were dead. Yeah. You hear about um, this phenomenon of survivor's guilt. Yeah. Did you experience that at all? Because I imagine when you are part of a team and – some do and some don't yeah. make it. It's kind of one of those inevitable outcomes, isn't it? Did, yeah, did you it experience is. that in a big way? I did. Um, I think early on, early on was I just personally because I was so badly injured myself. I thought, what's the pur- purpose of living? Mm. So at that early stage, it wasn't survivor guilt. It was just like, well, I'm burnt over my, my body. I got no teeth. I don't know if I'm going to. Like, it was just unknowns. I didn't know what life was going to be like, mm. and I wished that I died. And there was many months uh, within the years, the first years that I wish that. Um, But as sort of you sort of reintegrate back into society, me and my buddies who, you know, were there and some of them didn't get physically injured. Some of them just emotionally injured because they saw and they dragged people out of there. So we all had elements of survivor guilt and, you know, wished it was us that wish, wish we could have taken the place because we saw the pain on the parents' face and, you know, like just what the other end yep. had to face, uh, to, to basically deal with in this, this thing, you know, like it was the ripple effect of what Bali was and people looking outside in may have seen someone like me or the people who might've been more 
in the front of the media of, of surviving this, but the, the ripple effect was that the mums and dads, the brothers and sisters, the cousins, who in turn over the years we had many stories of other people taking their lives because they couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, are you still in, in close contact with the team that went over there? Yeah, the, the ones yeah, that made we've it got back. Our, you know, we've got our group, you know, yeah. and it's it's great. We um we got together not not too uh, long ago, and you know, you look or look around, and you're putting things into perspective. And we you know we're all. I'm 40 years old now. I've got three children, and uh, you look at all the other guys who've got their kids and stuff, and and you're so proud and happy that we've got through this. But then mm. there's that side of us that go, well, you know, we've got this and they don't. Yeah, you know what I mean. And um, as I say, the anniversary is that time to just embrace remember be thankful we got to spend that time with those those guys you know in those early years of the footy yeah. footy team um but also just be thankful that we get to yeah. continue living our life which you know has been really tough as injuries go um recovering from a severe burn yeah seems like one <laughs> of the tougher journeys to go on i would never wish burns on any enemy yeah. of mine whatsoever it is the most excruciating uh, injury you could ever imagine. And the initial burn, yeah, of course, is painful. But you know what's worse is just the months and the years of recovery. Um, burns heal, and when your scarring heals, it's got no less, less elasticity, elasticity, can't even say elasticity. It. elasticity in it. Yeah, I'm starting to choke up a little bit just thinking about it. Like for me, with 60% burns all over my back, it feels like I've got this coat on that's three sizes too small. Yeah. It restricts you. I don't sweat through my burns, you know. But, yeah, those early years were too hard. To spend about a year and a half in a full-length burns pressure suit and um, and just feel like an outcast. You just mm. – you honestly feel like an outcast. Like you, you're mummified almost, yeah, aren't you? you know what I mean? Yeah. And and I just you – know, my wife reminds me, reminded me the other day. She goes, you remember, like, you, I just never wanted to go out in public yeah. because I thought everyone was looking at me and everyone was judging me. And, you know, I really sympathize with people who have to go through that in their lives because, you know, again, I reflect back on who I was towards who I am. Um, but I ha ha over the years, I've had to learn to love myself again. Mm. You know what I mean, I had to learn to change my mindset, I guess, to go, well, I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. Mm. I'm not, I don't have burns, ugly scars that people are, uh, you know, Roast to be around. I feel like they're a badge of honor now, you know? So over the years, you sort of go through, you've got to go through the ups and downs of your emotions and mindsets to, to be in the darkest of darks, but then rise to the highest of highs. And, and you can only do that through various strategies and, you know, you know, things that I think that I've put in place in my life yeah. um, to be able to come out the other end and, and just be happy with who I am. Yeah. Um, and as I understand it, one of the, the really key moments in your particularly mental recovery was having the courage to go out and talk about it. And it was at a, yeah. a small group, a Lions club, yeah. if, if my memory serves right, me well. Yeah. Um, that was the first time that you mm. opened up and, and shared some of your story. Yep. Um, can you can you tell us how that came about and, and in hindsight what it meant for you? Yeah, you know, like I just, everyone, everyone deals with tragedy differently and most people bottle things up. Yep. You know, you look at the, the war veterans from, you know, and their PTSD, you know, People bottle it up and males in particular don't want to share their feelings with people. Mm. Um, and so I did in those early years, I bottled it up. I, I wore it myself on the exterior. I looked like I was. And angry. what did that look like? Just you just in a pit of despair. Did you. Yeah. Drugs, alcohol. Try to numb the pain. Yeah, numb yeah. the pain, yeah. you know, like just escape reality. Yeah. And, you know, late nights all alone, 
you know, uh, with the days, uh, beautiful outside, curtains drawn down, putting myself in the darkest corner of the house, yeah. shut myself off. Whereas those maybe hour or so that I maybe did go outside, maybe people saw a different view of me, but that was a, that was a front. My grandmother, she, uh, she slapped me around the face really. One day she looked at me and she said, Phil, you've got to talk about this. You've got to open up. You've got to get this off your chest. And she was the one who actually got me to go to a Lions club and speak to uh, 12 or so people, you know, and mm. that was the very first time. And initially I was like, no way, like me speak, like I'm not a speaker. Yeah, I can captain a football team that's, you know, bum touches and, you know, like pats <laughs> on the backs. That was, that was my thing. Um, but to speak about my story and then just to release all this, this depression and anger that I had, I don't know what's going to happen. So initially I sort of repelled the idea, but I later realized that, you know, in life, sometimes if this, the strategy that you're using is not getting you the results you want, you have to change tact. Mm. And so I thought maybe rather than bottling it up, maybe I do have to speak about this. Yeah. And so I did. I, I stood there in front of 12 wrinkly old faces that day and uh, told my story for the first time. And there was no structure. There was no nothing. It was from the heart. And I stood there and I cried and I was shivering from the emotion. And what happened in that moment was those 12 wrinkly old faces who probably had seen more war or death than I had. They stood. They clapped louder than they let a room of a thousand. Mm. And I just rem I remember having that internal dialogue, dialogue going, maybe this is why I'm here. Maybe mm. this is why I actually survived. And it gave me meaning. So maybe I, if I share what I've been through, maybe it might inspire someone else. And that's really what uh, started me speaking. And, yep. um, and a good friend said, why don't we travel around to the other Lions Clubs and raise money for a charity? And that's really what kick-started yep my ability to, to share my story, open my heart up and bear my scars physically, emotionally, and where I sort of learnt to speak and yeah. get that off my chest. Yeah. yeah, and it really took off from there, didn't it? I know you do a lot of that yeah. uh, inspirational speaking stuff. Yeah, it did. Look, initially it did, and then I hit that point where yeah. repeating the same story over and over again um, got uh, got enough. and I A felt little like Groundhog Day. Yeah, I felt like I was reliving it and yeah. I couldn't get out of that hole mm. because all I was talking about was that night. The worst moment of your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, over and over and over again. And although it was inspiring others, you know, there's again Takes that whole, I'd yeah. walk home and going, you know, like depressed again. So I gave it up at some point and it wasn't until I married with my wife and, you know, we, we sort of explored the opportunity of potentially writing my autobiography mm -hmm. and that, that process of writing my book from start to end of that story, 10 years on, um, was, was an amazing one for me. It's one for me to, I guess... Uh, sh share that with my wife yeah. so she could ask the questions and really work through that story with me. But then after that was that obviously when you write a book, you know, the request to do speaking gigs and stuff like that um, started to come more apparent. And at that point I had already started a business. I was starting to make a life for myself. So I was starting to, I guess, shed my skin from being the Bali bombing guy to now I'm a successful business owner, martial artist, professional athlete again. So Bali became a part of the story, not yep. the story. Yeah. It hasn't completely defined you. Correct. Yeah. Um, we need to take another break, Phil. But after that, yeah, keen to hear more about uh, the positive impacts, if I can yeah. <laughs> put it quite okay. like that. Yep. Um, we'll get into that more after the break. This is Inspiring Stories. Phil Britton is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. 
Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest is uh, Bali bombing survivor Phil Britton, uh, who was in Bali with the Kingsley Football Club. You might recall at the time, suffered uh, incredible loss. Uh, seven of the members of that footy club that went uh, to Bali for an end-of-season trip in 2002 uh, didn't come home alive. Uh, Phil, sharing your story has been part of, I suppose, your therapy, if you like. I know you still do it now. You speak to school groups. You speak to corporate people at the other end of the scale. Um, What's the general reaction that, that you get from people? I mean, some of the school kids wouldn't have even... Been alive, no. close to been being alive yeah, when each, it happened. Each group's unique, you know what I mean? Trying yeah. to get a, a room full of teenagers who don't really want to be in that room is, mm. is one thing. And then on the other scale is, you know, the corporates, if they're obviously the, the boss is paid for yeah. you to come in there, you know, the, the, the employees are going, oh, just another speaker. Yeah. Um, and then all the way up to elite athletes or whatever it is, you know. So every uh, talk that I do is unique in itself and I prepare – I sort of say, how can I connect with this audience and how can I give them the tools that they need to be able to step up and take yeah. their life seriously as well? So even tomorrow, I've got a talk with a high school. And so, you know, these kids are going to be, you know, maybe feeling some, some, some toughness from the world that we live in right now. Maybe they're not affected themselves, but maybe their parents have been. So maybe there might be some, you know, troubles at home. Who knows? So my job is to share my story and connect the needs that they are trying to obviously gain or acquire in their life or whatever the school or the corporate is trying to drive home to their employees or students and really connect them to a real-life story, yep. someone who's standing there right in front of them, who's lived some life, who's overcome yeah. some adversity and go, you know what, I was, in there, I was in your shoes many years ago and I was sat in the room not listening to this kid talk mm. or I've been in those rooms thinking, oh, you know, my boss has you know, hired this guy. So I'm a real person. I've got real experiences. I've overcome some quite adverse, uh, uh, you know, situations. And uh, I really think that I can connect on an emotional level or on a sameness level. Even though I'm 40 years old now, I like to think I can still connect with a teenager mm. uh, and still and I still have them walk away loving their mum and dad a little bit more. Yeah. Or putting a bit more time on what they want to achieve in their life and not just sort of flipping out on social media or you know, checking in and checking out at work and making sure that they're living their best life. Mm. The, I suppose when you're speaking to those youngsters, you know, once upon a time you were that age, as yeah. you said. <laughs> uh, having said that, you had a profound life-changing experience at, at 22. Do you feel um, still connected to the, the teenage Phil Britton or does, does that person almost seem like a different person to you because you had that kind of moment when you were 22 yeah. where everything changed? I think, you know, this is, this is an interesting thing, you know, like I find that most people who have gone through some sort of adversity and big challenge in their life usually get woken up. Mm. You know what I mean? Where we can quite easily as humans take the easy road and the comfort zone road. And it's not until you lose someone or something happens to you or something significant happens to your life that you actually reflect on what you want and who do you want to become. So I think what I try to do is be that person who goes, you don't have to have that. You don't have to lose someone. You don't have to you know, lose your mum or dad or you don't have to get cancer or lose your child or you know, you know, um, not get that career choice that you want. You don't have to go through that adversity. You just have to learn through someone who's maybe already been there and understand that you actually have the skills, the talents and the gifts to be and do whatever you want to do. Um, so... Some people come back to people like myself and sometimes they go, it's okay for you because you got blown up 
or you know other inspiring stories like Kurt Fernley, you know the guy yep. who's got no legs. Mm-hmm. He's an aspiring guy, dude. He's done some amazing things. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've trekked the Kokoda Trail. He's dragged his ass literally up that thing as well. That inspires me. But why can someone like him do it, whereas someone who may be fully able won't do it? So, so we always tend to wait for these life-changing moments before we make life-changing mm. action. So I try and encourage people to go, hey, well, guess what? You don't need to wait that. Wait for that. You don't need to live through this. We have it already within us. So it's about building those belief systems and building those tools where they can walk away going, yeah, actually, I can do this and I don't have to go through that. Yeah. Um, 2002 was the year, but I know you've been back to Bali since and you've been instrumental in, in uh, the development of the, the Peace Park Yeah, They're on the site of the, the Sari Club. But tell me about the first time you went back to Bali. What was that like? I went back six months after and that was a... That's soon. For me, yeah. Um, that was one of the times where I went back to be in the courtroom of the smiling assassin, Ambrosi. Yep. And uh, so I went back for a few reasons. One to be in the courtroom, to see this guy face to face. And initially I thought I'm going to jump the fence and I'm going to use my martial arts skills and beat the hell out of this guy, you know what I mean? But And no one would have <laughs> I know, no thought one badly of you for doing that. But yeah. I sat there and watched this guy with no remorse and thought, you know what, I'm wasting all this time and anger and emotion on something I can't change. Yeah. What I can change is how I feel and how I act and how I behave. So that was one thing, a big lesson for me. Number two, going back to the site, the Saracob site, and even in those early days, seeing some of the blood left on the on the tiles that are on the floor, though it had been cleared out, there was still rem- remnants of the bombing. Mm-hmm. So to go there where my mates died and where you know 202 people died right there in those areas was was another. And then the third thing was because that and that was uh, uh, leading up to the anniversary. So when I went back 12 months later for the anniversary, I felt like that was the funeral that I could just send, say goodbye to my mates. Yeah. The seven guys who perished from my team, uh, I couldn't be at their funerals and I felt like I hadn't said goodbye. And so that one year anniversary is huge for me to be able to go to the anniversary in Bali and really say my goodbyes to my, to my buddies. Yeah. Um, just going back to the, the court appearance of Amrosi, who yeah. became uh, of the bombers yep. who actually carried out the attack. He became the the figure for everyone to focus yeah. their rage towards. Yeah. Um, being what was it like being in the in the courtroom there? You know, meters from him. Yeah, it was. Um, and it was and seeing him s- smiling. Tough, yeah. It was emotionally tough because you know that 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 person there had an instrumental part in killing so many mm. people. You know I mean, you remember Tim about when September 11 happened. You know, when the twin towers fell. I remember thinking I was so lucky to be an Australian. Yeah. And that would never happen to me. Mm. One year, one month, one week, one day, I was blown up. Mm. Now, coincidence or not, you're just thrust into a situation where you have to blame someone. Yeah. And that guy and the others that were involved were the ones that wore the brunt of it. And for absolutely all the right reasons too. Mm. But as I said, being meters from that guy and wanting to jump over and do something, but just realizing that, you know what, this is something that I'm going to have to deal with all my life. And if I can't put my anger and frustrations and all my emotions to the side, then I'm not going to be able to do that for the rest of my life. So yeah. it not, I, I would never forgive them. I never would never forgive them for what they did, but I'm not going to put my time and You attention. don't give them your energy no. anymore. Yeah. And, 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 and a saying that I always say to, to in my talks, you know, where your focus goes, energy flows. 
You know, so if I focus on anger and frustration, I'm going to get it straight back. So I quickly really early realized that I need to put my attention on the things that I want to be, who I want to become, the things that make me more powerful, more more stronger mentally, physically, emotionally. I need to put my attention there and not over there. Yeah. The, the Peace Park on the side of the, the Sari Club, it was yeah. a long mission. Yeah, man. It's, it, it, uh, it, it's still going. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's so much red tape. Yeah. Uh, there's so much red tape to cut through there and uh, I've sort of lost a little bit of faith and a little bit of hope there. Well, you'd think so, 18 years on, you'd think yeah, it'd be done. Yeah. We've had so many uh, moments where it's been hopeful, yeah, but then many hopeless moments as well. So, you know, we've always put our mindset to having something there, but if it doesn't eventuate, well, you know, at least we've got each other. Again. Yeah. Maybe your energy's best placed. That's right. Elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Phil, we need to take another break, but after that, I want to hear all about your... Uh, foray into the martial arts world and the sure. successful business that you've been able to establish uh, around martial arts and how that is is also so important to you, you know, post-2002 yep. event. This is Inspiring Stories. Phil Britton is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. Phil Britton is our special guest. Uh, Phil, before we get on to your martial arts, I know you've uh, you've done a couple of pretty gruelling treks and, yeah. and climbs. You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Correct. Uh, you've done the Kokoda Trail. Trail, yeah. You've done Italy's I've done uh, Grand Paradiso, Italy's yep. highest mountain, and uh, a few adventure treks in uh, the remote Kimberleys, which have been yeah. very, very cool. Uh, all just for the the challenge of it? Is it kind of just something you wanted to to do, yeah, to clear your head? What <laughs> what was your motivation behind bit of bit of both. I mean, the initial all, time, all the first time I did a trek was a Kokoda Trail, and that was yeah. 10 years. That was a 10-year anniversary. Yeah. And I felt like that there was a moment where I, I wanted to do something that was going to challenge me. Mm. And uh, although I'd been... And it did? Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. Nine yeah. days doing Papua New Guinea was very challenging. I mean, you, I've heard the story's never done it, but <laughs> it's it's full on. It is full on, you know I mean? It's just gruelling, you know? And uh, it, lucky enough, we didn't get too much rain. Yeah. So uh, we got a, a good run. But nine days living on the uh, the tracks of Papua New Guinea is, is tough. Yeah. Climbing mountains, that's got its own... <laughs> risks yeah. and its own toughness as well. Like night over a nine day trek, that's long and grueling. Whereas a mountain, we sort of were up and there, up and down within a day or two. Yeah. Um, but that day or two was very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, everything that I've ever done for a chariot, from a, an adventure base has been two things. One, to tick something off the bucket list and push me mentally, physically, emotionally, personally, but I've always tied it back to charity. And uh, what kicked me off was, um, you know, someone we probably both know, Rick Parrish. He was part of the Telethon Adventurers and uh, his son died at the age of four uh, from a very rare and aggressive brain cancer. Mm. And uh, we met at some point. I think actually we met in the Chris Mainwaring Legends match. Right. We were both playing in, in the footy there. And he said, I want you to come on an adventure with me. And uh, I ended up becoming an ambassador for his charity. Yep. And I had young kids at that point. And, you know, when you hear a story that Rick had been through, you know, with losing his four-year-old son and you've got young kids yourself, your heart pours out to him mm. and... And you look at your kids. I remember after that conversation, looking at my young Ben at that stage, um, 
and think he was asleep. And I think, you know, I will do anything and everything I can to keep you safe, buddy. Mm. And, you know, if it's building awareness through brain cancer stuff or whatever it may be, yep. I'm going to do everything I can. And that was the charity I connected with. Yep. And it just so happened that you could tick things off your bucket list and raise money and awareness and try and save, you know, kids' lives. Yep. So, yeah. You obviously live life <laughs> to the full now. Yeah. When you, when you look outside, you know, we can see outside the window now. Yep. People almost look like they're sleepwalking their yeah. way through life, don't they? 100%. Do you just want to go and shake them I and think just sort of, like your grandmother did, sort yeah. of slap you across <laughs> the face and go, like, come on, 100%, do you know, something? Well, I think it's very easy for us as humans to take that sort of easy street. You yeah. know I mean, it's, it's so easy to check in, check out, nine to five, um, but there's so much of life to experience and there's so much hidden, untapped potential. Everyone has a hidden, untapped potential potential mm. and that doesn't mean you have to climb a mountain that might be something different for you you know what i mean so it doesn't have to be an adventure that you know it's death defying it could just be something simple yeah um but i just think that unless we push ourselves past that comfort zone we'll never actually get to experience the growth that we can achieve yeah and uh you know I, I i'd love to just take people on some of these little adventures and and when i have done Wake we've tried yeah and when we have done i guess what i've prepped, tried to do as well is use the adventures as one thing but then use a bit of my personal development stuff from my speaking that I do. And I take people on an emotional journey as well. And hopefully they can go, you know what, I physically challenged myself, but I've come out the other end of seven days or whatever it may be, a better person because yep. we've discovered more about ourselves. And then we can reintegrate back in life being a better version of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your, your martial arts. I know you've uh, established uh, your yeah. own martial arts academy. But yep. yeah, why was martial arts uh, such an important part of your life and uh, sorry the many elements of this question w Correct. was it a part of your life prior to 2002 it was you know early on um you know what little boy didn't want to be a karate karate expert yeah. from karate kid you Everyone know needed a Mr. Miyagi in their yeah, lives. No, so <laughs> there was that want and desire young on uh, early on to do that um but then at the age of 16 that's when i first started martial arts and i was initially doing it because i wanted to boost my physical uh and mental uh, capabilities for football, yep. but I got injured in football and then that sort of made me take up martial arts full time. Uh, I loved it, enjoyed it, got my black belt in four years. And in 2000, I gave martial arts up to pursue football again, which mm. led me to play for Kingsley footy club. Uh, obviously after Bali, you know, a lot had happened and I needed to try and reintegrate myself. And as I said before, you know, battling, um, depression, drugs, alcohol, um, there's a saying that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I was hanging out with people who were doing that stuff. So I think I thought something's got to change here. What I knew was going to be a great community for me to get back to was martial arts. Mm. Everyone's there for the right reasons, you know, trying to grow themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, push themselves, learn. Martial arts is one of those things that it's for everyone. And uh, everyone's going to grow in martial arts, whether it's a little tip on your belt, whether it's a new belt color, whether it's fitness, however it is for you. But martial arts is for everyone. And just, just hitting those small attainable goals in martial arts was just really helpful for me. And then obviously being around all those people, all those positive people. Yeah. And I realized I fell in love with going back to martial arts and I started teaching. I never thought myself as a teacher before. Absolutely not. Just like I never thought myself as a speaker. But I fell in love with teaching. And I thought, you know what, if I can teach someone the same mindsets, the beliefs, or give them the ability to, uh, to be bigger, better, more courageous in their life, whether that's work-related, school-related, whatever, because I truly believe martial arts helped me in my recovery. Yeah. Then I'm, I owe that to the community. And so I embarked on this journey with a business partner, Graham, uh, to build um, one of Australia's and if not one of the world's best, biggest martial artists, martial arts um, businesses in the world. And we did. 
Um, over the years, we've built an amazing school. Three schools, 2,000 students, had 40 staff, um, and uh, we accomplished that, which is amazing. And yeah. I've, I've, I've trained in many styles, and I tra- train elite military units, and I train uh, teachers at school. So it's not just civilian stuff. It's, you know, for everyone and anything. I, fi- I find that I like to find a-, a challenge or a problem, and then I try and solve that. Yep. And that's what we do with the martial arts side of things. But um, what's happened now, and as we sort of spoke about before with COVID-19, you know, we were challenged again. Mm. And in some sense, I felt like this was a harder challenge in overcoming the Bali bombing. Right. And the reason was because being blown up and overcoming this was a battle for me yep. and only me. Whereas when COVID-19 hit and our business got closed down, I had my family All to think staff. about. Yep. My business partner's family, mm-hmm. my staff, their family, they got houses, they got kids. And I felt like if we let our business fall over, I would be letting everyone down. I'm choking, yeah. I'm just thinking of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. So we, we went to battle with COVID-19 and mm. uh, closed businesses down physically, but went online. And it was tough. And just like a lot of businesses, we're, we've gone backwards, but we're rebuilding and uh, we're building a new business, uh, a new version of it. We sort of, I sort of come from this mindset, you know, if my house is blown down, and I'm going to rebuild it. What bricks mm. do I want to rebuild this with? Am mm. I going to use the same bricks or am I going to bring in new bricks? And that's what we're doing. So we've rebranded. It's gone from the WA Institute of Martial Arts to life. And because the reason for life is because that's all that matters. It's simply called life. It's life. Yeah. Life, martial arts, fitness, and purpose. Yeah. Because that's all that matters. And, uh, and that's what I believe is the most important thing. And so our martial arts school is opening soon. Uh, in June up, so you know you guys can Google or reach out to me anywhere you want, and we'll get you guys uh, checking that place out. But it's a place where people can come and be a part of a community and do life together. Yeah, and apart from just picking up the physical skills of martial arts and you know that sense of discipline that that goes with it, do they get a little bit of you as yeah, well? Yeah, hundred percent. Everything. And, and what this you've is been the thing. Through. What we did with martial arts was what I had then. Yeah. Now I've got 18 years experience of from when I was blowing up to now from personal development to business to martial arts. Now we're putting all that in. There's the personal development. There's, you know, the fitness side of things. There's um, bully awareness. There's kids programs. There's healthy grab and go snacks. We're just bringing it in. So it becomes a whole life solution and not someone like yourself who maybe has a family and you sort of split as a family of where to go. You can come to us and we'll give you everything you need to be the best you can be. Yeah. Um, when international borders do come down, and hopefully that will happen at yeah. some point, um, is is Bali a place that you could ever see yourself going back to and having uh, a holiday? Hundred percent, and yeah. I, and, I, and I'll give you this uh, this um, one here to finish with on this was because Bali met, early on Bali was the place I got blown up, yep. and it always will be, and always uh, always will be in the future. But I realized that I had to change my connotation with that with Bali because I wanted to enjoy it because, you know, Bali didn't do this to me. The Balinese people didn't do this to me. Just bad seeds in the apple did. Yeah, a few people did. So a few years after, Bali was where I asked my wife to be engaged to Mm. to marry me. And so now it's less about the bad and it's more about the good. Become part of a beautiful story. It's become a beautiful story for me. So I, I just try and change the way things mean for me. And now it means a place of beauty. It means a place of a uh, place where I uh, engaged my wife and asked her to be married to marry me, and now it's will pass on from you know, generation to generation. Mm. Of, you know, we just love to go back there and be part of the community. Good stuff. Well, Phil, thank you so much for coming in and sharing a story. Good luck with uh, life, uh, the, the business life, thank you, and life generally as yeah. well. Thank you so much for for being so honest and sharing so much of your thank story. You.
uh, we do appreciate it. Pleasure. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.